Come on in. <laughs> All right. So we're going we're gonna to start with a quick review. I'm going to need you guys to catch me up, though. I was saying this to, I don't know who, which one of you, but I feel a little disjointed because I was out. And even though I was doing my homework, it's different the way that you study as a teacher. Uh, when you know you're not accountable and you're not going to show up in a classroom, you, your focus is just slightly different. The other thing is that I've kind of lost the flow of thought. So I know that Lisa taught and she taught directly from the curriculum. So I should be able to just jump in and pick up with you. But I don't know all the particulars of what she said and how the conversations have gone. So you guys are going to help me today to get back on board with you. Okay. Um, and then uh, give me a week or two and I should be back in the swing of it. <laughs> but hopefully we can, we can do this together. Okay. Let's start with just a very quick review. And um, one of the exciting things about doing a topical study like spiritual gifts is that we go back to looking at um, some of the ABCs of doing inductive Bible study. What is one of the important things that you need to do when you're going to do a subject study like, like spiritual gifts? How do you go about tackling that subject if you're going to dive into it inductively in the word? Okay, you have to, for one thing, you need to look at references. Now, are there any specific kind of references that you would be looking for up front? If you would, if you think back on what we've been doing in weeks one, two, and three, where we looked at four primary uh, uh, teaching sections, right? Why did we look at those first four ones? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Why those four? Okay. In 1 Corinthians 12, where you see the, the subject of spiritual gifts, right? What is it that author is doing in that book? Do you, I know that one of the things she did was took you through to set context on each one of those, right? What is it that was going on? In, and 1 Corinthians is familiar to all of us because we just did 1 Corinthians not that long back. What is it that you found 1 Corinthians was useful for? What was the purpose of that book? What was he doing? In that chapter, he introduced spiritual gifts. Why? What was wrong? What was going on in that church? Pardon? There was all kinds of church problems, right? Can you remember some of them? Just yeah. Well, in the in those particular three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, which by the way, don't forget that they're a unit. I mean, 12, 13, actually 12, 13, 14 could have been one chapter, although it would have been a humongous one, right? But those three are actually one segment division, right? And what is it is, and as a matter of fact, you can actually back it up and add in 11, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 11, 12, 13, and 14. What were those four chapters addressing? What was the major subject there? They were, there was disagreements, there was division, there was quarreling, there was immaturity in the church. Back, way back in chapter 3, talked about them being babes and they should be able to be teaching by now, right? When they hit 12, though, the first, or chapter 11, rather, the first two subjects there, one was the subject about women, 
Remember, there was a problem with some women. We're going to talk about that subject again today. And then the second half of 11 talked about the subject of uh, the Lord's Supper. Do you remember what the problem was with the Lord's Supper? They weren't waiting on one another. They weren't exercising it correctly when they came together as a congregation, correct? And so then in chapter 12, although 12 um, introduces the subject of 1 Corinthians, but by the time you get to 14, what do you recognize is really the issue that's going on concerning the, the overall subject of spiritual gifts? They weren't. They were right. They weren't loving each other, and they also were not actually exercising it correctly when they came together in the congregation, right? So 11, 12, 13, and 14, Miss Barbara, oh my goodness. Oh, it's so nice to see you. I'll hug you later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yes, we did. See what happens if you leave? Come, you, you want to... You want to come sit right here? There's a spot right here. Oh, are you kidding? Jeez, I can't get anybody to s Nobody will sit in the front row with me. What's wrong? Do I have bad breath or what? I spit, don't I, Juanita? Okay. All right. So 11, 12, 13, and 14, basically, he's addressing the issue of congregational gathering. Okay. They were doing all kinds of things wrong when they came together as a congregation. They weren't being kind and loving toward one another. They weren't waiting for one another when it came to the Lord's Supper. Uh, with the women, they were coming in and, and there was the subject of contentiousness that goes in there. And, and, and we get really sidetracked because actually it talked about head coverings as the example, right, of the underlying problem. There's my... There's my little gift of prophecy where I, I go down to that systemic problem. What was the undergirding problem? The external problem was the head covering. But what was the, the deeper systemic problem to what was going on? They were being contentious, right? And we'll talk about that again. But so if you look at 11, 12, 13, and 14, understand he's correcting them for doing some, all these things wrongly in their gathering as an assembly in the church, right? Okay, so knowing that, when you look at 12 then, he's coming back and he's addressing this subject. He starts in 12, and what is the first thing he does when he brings up the subject of spiritual gifts? In 12, what does he do? Right, so he was laying out what they needed to know about the general subject, right? So what does that ideally do for us as, as students who want to understand that subject ourselves? How many of us have problems understanding spiritual gifts? Yeah, we, we kind of do, right? It's not a subject that gets talked about very often, I don't think, from the pulpits nor from classrooms. It kind of, I don't know if it's people... I think there are, there are some touching points that are controversial and it becomes hot. And rather than helping people wor work through the weeds on things and help them iron out where their, their problems are and help them see how they should be viewing the, the teaching of it, they just kind of sidestep it and say, well, we don't need to talk about that. We'll just move on, right? So here we have then, therefore, a prime opportunity in 1 Corinthians 12, to get doctrinal teaching on the subject. So do you see now why chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is one of the first places we as inductive students 
should go. If you want to know something about any given subject, you go to its either its first use or its most clearly defined definitions. Would you say 1 Corinthians 12 out of even all of those four that we've listed here, that even 12 is probably the most extensive of the teachings, 12, 13, and 14? Yeah, I would too. Although the others are really good too. I mean, they really certainly add more dimension and, la and layer in additional points. But 12 is probably the major one. That is why you started there. So if you're trying to understand your process of learning, what you do then if you're going to do a subject study is you find the most clearly defined area of that subject where it's doctrinally taught what it is, the principles or the precepts concerning that subject, right? Well, we did uh, covenant. First thing we did is we went to its first use in scripture, right? All the way back in Genesis. And then we progressively kept moving through in Genesis until we developed a full understanding of that subject matter. Then we could go anywhere in scripture. And what would happen when you see a word like loving kindness? What would you go? <gasps> ding, 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 right? That's that term is a covenant term, right? It's a it, it's once you learn the terminology and the identifying qualifiers, then you know what it is you're looking for. So that's what we've been doing with First uh, Corinthians 12 in our first three chapters. We laid out those doctrines. So let's go back to 12 right now, and you tell me what you remember are the basic principles that that would be essential for someone to know. You don't have to be too complex. I would like you to tell me, pretend you're talking to your sixth or seventh grade grandchild or neighbor's child or your sister or brother or whoever you've got that's little. Try to think of it on that level because I do think that in the church, because you have studied it intensely, but there are a lot of people who haven't. So you want to get this lingo down to a level where you can have a conversation with someone that they don't have to have, you know, as much uh, insight as you do in order to really understand it. Okay. So tell me, what do you know about spiritual gifts? Answer the who, what, why, when, where, and how questions. Okay. They are for the benefit are for the common good or benefit of all, right? And that is in 12.7, correct? Okay. What else? Yes, it is God who gives them to you. So God determines who gets them, right? Okay, I'm going to put verses 18 and 28 on that thing about God giving the gift. Now, they're all important exactly. How, how do you see that? Can you give me a verse and kind of expound on that? Okay. There are a variety of gifts, and when it can, when you speak about the subject of being varieties of gifts, um, does any one person receive all the gifts, or does any do all people receive the same gifts? I know one of the issues 
let's for instance speaking in tongues we know that becomes a, a a touchy point and i remember especially when i was a young believer that this became a problem for me because um i had friends in the military uh, chapel system where we all kind of worship together but boy it caused you to have to really know what you knew and to be able to defend it but also to be grace gracious in the way that you had a discussion about it um that was hard <laughs> but but when somebody says to you that they don't believe you're even saved Juanita you're not saved because you don't speak in tongues well maybe you do but I'm going to pretend you don't okay Okay, so me, okay, but that's what someone actually has done to me in the past. They would look at me and say, you don't, I don't believe that unless you speak in tongues, you, there is no evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I don't believe you're saved. So how do we answer that? How do we address that from 1 Corinthians 12? Everyone has a different gift. Okay, so there are a variety of gifts and... There you go. All do not, all do not speak with tongues, do they? <laughs> right? And that was verse what? 30. 30. Okay. So that's really helpful. Would you say that's a helpful doctrinal truth? So if you're ever having a conversation with somebody, you're able to explain to them, now wait a minute, I understand that you may have that gift and that's great. I don't have that gift, but you know what God's word says? Not everyone has all the gifts and no, but no congregation has, uh, everyone in that church is not going to have the same gift. Why not? Very good, because because in the end, what is the purpose of the gifts? Go back to verse 25. Yes, to edify one another and build each other up. Look at verse 25, and what does it say there? So that there be no division, and therefore they will have care for, give care for one another, or have care. In other words, you're going to need one another. God actually designed this whole thing so that we won't have the same gifts and that way we have need of one another. You guys would not need me or the gifting that I have if all of you had the same gift. If you were all teachers, what would be the point, right? Does that make sense? In the same way, if everyone speaks in tongue, now once we get to the gift of tongues, you're going to find out what that exactly is intended for. It's designed purpose within the body of Christ. And you're going to come to see that it's not necessary for everyone to have that same gift. Right? Okay, so this is a real doctrinal point that's super important for you to grab hold of and have that in the back of your head. Not everyone has the same gift. We're, we have need of a, one another. To have need of one another. Okay, and that's in verse 25. Um, uh, I also could say 29. I kind of put that one in there anyway. Um, 
how exactly do you receive your spiritual gift? If God determines it, when do you get it and how? Wow. Does that knowledge actually actually resolve the issue about everybody, for instance, everyone thinking that they should receive the same gift and therefore in some congregations I'll say, let me pray for you that you would receive this gift, right? Is it possible for me to come and lay my hands on you that you would receive a gift? Based on this doctrine, no. It's not possible because why? You receive it when? At your spiritual birth. So that you're going to uh, go back and look at, you receive them by the Spirit, verse 8 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 12. For no one is given the word of wisdom. Um, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Then you flip over to verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Then he goes on to say, for even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one, so also is Christ. For, here's your biggie, by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So right there it tells you how you got it, by the spirit. When did you get it? When you were what? Baptized into the body by the spirit. That's at the moment of your spiritual birth. Therefore, no one can ever make a claim that they can lay their hands upon you and impart to you a spiritual gift. Now, are there passages in scripture, though, that we have um, knowledge of where it kind of looks like that's what's being said? And, um, okay, now that's in Acts, the birthing of the church. Yes. Yes, in Acts, at the birthing of the church. And that, okay, now, how would we explain why it happened in that manner in Acts? If this is true, that you don't receive the Spirit by someone else praying for you to receive it, and yet in Acts we see this demonstration, that at least it appears that it had something to do with it. What was going on in the book of Acts? What's important for you to know in order to interpret it well? The birthing of the church. What else? When the Holy Spirit came. Because the whole book of Acts is about the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? And the first coming is, is uh, introduced to us in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fell and they all speak in tongues, right? Do you remember the outline for the book is in chapter 1 and it says, and you, sh um, you should be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and um Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the earth, right? So it broke down into three segments, and it literally gives you an outline for the book. And if you go through the book of Acts, guess what happens? At each point where it's taken, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, then to the whole world, each time there's a marker where there's a moment of a witnessing by Peter of God doing this thing which is establishing the church. Now, I, I just want to clarify this to you because you may not have connected all the dots, and I think we have talked about it before. But in Matthew, there was a time where 
uh, Jesus speaks to Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, who, who do men say that I am? Right? Do you remember that? And he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then what was, what is it that Jesus said in response? By my father. Blessed are you. You revealed that by my father. And then he goes on to say, and for this reason, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Right? And upon this rock, I shall build my church. Now, he's speaking about himself, the message of who he is that was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, right, through Peter. But then what he says to Peter is, Peter, I'm giving you the keys. And by saying that to him, what does the keys mean in the, in the Jewish system? What are they talking about there? Authority. He's giving him an authority to open doors and to lock doors. And if you go back and reread that whole uh, uh, outline of how that flow of conversation is. He's literally saying to Peter, Peter, you're going to be my witness as I establish my church because by God's uh, revealing to you of this, I am endowing to you that authority. And so Peter, therefore, at each of those points in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit fell and when he moved to the next segment, which was the Jews, the Gentiles rather, and then that's like in verse chapter 10 or 11, I think, in Acts, and then all the way down, I think, in the in chapter like 17 or something, where he goes to Ephesus, remember, and then there's that third one, and it's to the uttermost parts of the world. Again, you see the Holy Spirit falling, they speak in tongues, and they receive the Holy Spirit. But why was Peter there present? Not because he needed to lay on hands. But because what? He was the witness with the key that God had given him the authority to be the one to witness the birthing of that church. Isn't that amazing? So now what did you just learn by that little long explanation? Okay, everything comes from God. But what is it that you needed to know in order to give accurate interpretation of something like someone laid on their hands and they received the Holy Spirit? What did you need to know? Yeah. As a student, though, let me just guide you a little bit more, Jan. When, when, you, are, when you are searching to figure out why is it that it had to be Peter come and lay on hands, what did you need to know? Okay, very good. Excellent point, excellent point. It is a historical book, not a doctrinal book per se, although there's doctrine within it. But the major purpose of it was to lay out the historical birthing of the church, okay? Connecting it back to Matthew, where, G where Peter made his declaration, what did you now learn? Context to why Peter was doing what he was doing. Everything's about setting your context, knowing your background, the backdrop to it, um, and Never what? Violating your known doctrines. The known doctrine concerning spiritual gifts is no one receives the spirit by me laying on hands. Right? They receive it when? At the moment of their spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes in, you've got your gift. It's a done deal. Right? Wow. 
that's a good, that was a real good, I wouldn't even plan that one. That one was really good though. Okay, now, <laughs> I've, <laughs> I'm a little rusty. Okay, all right, so now we got these varieties. So common good, um, who gets a gift? All, that's right. All believers receive a gift or have a gift. And I'm going to put an S at the end of that, a gift or gifts. I would venture to be bold enough to say they really have more than one gift. Most of us are a mixture of a variety of gifts, right? Do you remember the one verse that talks about the manifold grace of God? I did a word study on that one. I wasn't here when you guys were doing that, but I got so excited when I did that study because I went, that is so cool. Do you know what manifold grace of God is talking about? That word manifold? The manifold grace, it, it's the word variegation, varieties of that are blended. And so I sat at my computer and I took markers and um, colored pencils and started blending colors. I thought, what if you get a little bit of purple for the prophet and a little bit of green for the teacher and maybe a little bit of yellow for the exhorter and add in a little bit of whatever else. And if you have just a variety, and not only that, but there's there's a measure of faith. Remember the verse that talks about is to the measure of faith given to you. you exercise it according to the measure of faith. Do you understand that that's not saying that some get more faith than, than others? What it's saying is some get more of a certain gift than others. In other words, my strongest gifting is teaching, but I also have other gifts as well. A little bit of a prophet. I've got a little bit of word of uh, wisdom. Um, maybe you've got a serving gift, but you also have an exhortation gift. And you also maybe have a, a gift of administration. And you blend those three together, and it's one is stronger, one is a little bit less, and then you got another one. It's just a, just a, I got just a dab of that profit. It's not much, just a little. But it's enough to keep me alert to certain things. As a teacher in particular, it's very beneficial, right? Um, I can spot the faults really quickly. So if I sit under anyone else's teaching, I, my ears perk up immediately when I hear doctrine is out of line. And then I start looking at the person's ministry. I usually Google them and say, okay, who are these people and what is their background? And all of a sudden I'm going, aha, that's what the problem is. So I'm able, and God has given that to me, I think it helps me to be able to guard the treasure that God has entrusted to me. Um, it also, uh, there's a passage in, um, in Ezekiel chapter 3 where God is uh, basically commissioning Ezekiel to be a watchman over the house of Israel. And this was a verse that God gave to me early in my spiritual walk with him where he says, basically, you are to give them my word whether they want to hear it or not, right? If you give it to them faithfully and you do your part, then the blood's on them whether they do it or they don't. But if you don't, I'm going to hold you responsible. So I remember when God gave that to me, it was really <laughs> not a good feeling at the moment. But I was a little bit excited, but also a little bit nervous about that. Spiritual gifting is a blending of a little of this and a little of that. It's the manifold grace of God. And to the measure of faith that you are given with each, each measures, depending on how much of each gift, and you blend that together, that's why the manifold, another way to describe that is it's like a snowflake. How they always say, what do they say about snowflakes? No two are alike. 
No two of us are alike. Even teachers, no two are alike. And so my gifting, I might be really strong in one area, but very weak in others, right? But that's okay because it's the manifold grace of God in me and I do it according to what he's given to me. And then my faithfulness can grow it and it can get stronger and it can hopefully get better. But, but it's still the measure that he's given me in each of the giftings that guides me. It's his work in me, right? That is true for every one of us. Your gifting and your blend of giftings is a manifold grace of God. Isn't that exciting? You're a snowflake. Didn't know it, huh? That, okay, I won't go there. <laughs> All right, now, <laughs> um, okay, now let's review the, uh, the gifts that we've already looked at so far. So this gives us a basic foundation. Is there any other points that we've missed that you really think need to be up there, really, before we move on? Huh? All are for the common good. The, the gifts are for the common good. In other words, the gift is not for you, by the way. That's another point that actually resolves another issue, which is those who speak about certain gifts like uh, people who have a prayer language, they call it. I'm not exactly right. Okay, and they talk about it being in the privacy of their closet or whatever. Well, what does this say? It's for the common good. Now, I understand you can take that and kind of make that say, well, it's for the common good because what they're doing benefits someone because they're praying for them. Well, that's true, but they don't have to pray in that strange language in order to accomplish that. They can just simply pray, right? And what it, and when Paul was correcting how they were doing these gifts wrong in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12, 13, 14, when you get to 14, he literally says, I'd rather speak a word of intelligence than a million words in a tongue, right? That the that the household of faith would be what? Encouraged, right? That they would receive a word that would instruct them or would motivate them or would exhort them in some way or correct them or rebuke them or whatever was needed. Because that which you and I are exercising in our in our gifts are for the common good. They're not for us. God didn't give me my gift for me right? Which is also another point that says, because you know you have a gift, it was given to you at your spiritual birth, what are you responsible then to do with it? Use it. Actually, it was one of the questions Kay asked us this week in the homework. So what does this tell you? Well, it means you better be using it. You're expected to be using it. And there are tons of verses in, um, the, in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the faithful steward right? And the rewards that are going to come to those who are being faithful in the giftings that they have. Okay, so all believers have a gift. You receive them by the Spirit. You receive your gifts at your salvation. God determines who gets what God gifts. No one has all the gifts. Uh, we each have a place of service so that we have need for one another. And everyone does not get any one gift. In other words, all are not apostles, are they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? Okay. All right. So now let's talk about the gifts that you've looked at. I am going to divide this in a way that I think, whoops, I didn't do that very well. Let me do that better. Um, I'm going to divide this in a way that I think is going to help better um, 
define these gifts. One of the questions that uh, Lisa ha had asked me before was, I'm not really seeing the distinction between this and between that, right? Uh, some of these gifts do have some overlapping, don't they? What is it that you see, for instance, in the first two you we looked at, which was the apostle and the prophet? What is the distinction in their gifting and what is it that they do? So tell me about the apostle. Trying to bullet down what exactly, what is that gift? Okay, they're like a missionary. Very good. Okay. They, okay, so they go. Right. So what does that tell you They don't that primarily they don't do? There you go. So their gift is primarily to outside the church, right? Outside the church. So you've got the apostle. And it says, um, apostles do what kind of things? That is very common to a lot, including my gift. What do, what do apostles do or what can they be seen doing? Speaking gifts, right? They're teaching, they're, they're pastoring sometimes, they're, they're also in leadership of various kinds, right? That's what the apostle does. So the emphasis, however, with the apostle is to the lost, right? Or to, there's another way I like to place it too, or it's to a place of void. Sometimes it's not just, it's not about evangelism for them, or necessarily just about planting churches, although that is very big for the apostle, but it can also be about simply starting new ministries, ministries of need. Maybe, they're, maybe they need an orphanage in a certain place, or maybe they need a women's shelter of some kind, or maybe they need um, a rehab place of some kind. And so apostles often will go out. They are evangelistic often they like to preach and teach the word and they like to draw people in but they like to organize ministries of various kinds so does that does that help more define to you the the, the distinctions of an apostle their emphasis is to the lost or the places of void or need they are also those who have authority which is very distinct from somebody like um, the prophet has authority from the word itself, but they don't have authority to establish ministries or churches per se, like the apostle does. The apostles would go, they would establish a church, and they would go to the next place, they would establish a church. And then what, did, what would Paul say after he had established a church later? He'd say what? Let's go back and check on him. And then often he'd write letters like he did with Corinthians and Peter and all these others where he's correcting them. He has authority to set the standards. So there's a leadership authority that comes with the apostleship gift that's kind of unique. Um, it, I mean, I have authority to teach from here, but I don't have authority to make rules up for you guys in the church, in the body of Christ, right? I don't have, um, I'm not the umbrella, basically, over any church, but an apostle would be. Got it? Any other things you want to say about that gift? Okay, so the apostle preaches, teaches, uh, leads their leaders, um, emphasis, 
is the lost or um, places of void or need. In other words, they will, they will establish ministries, has authority, to establish, it can be churches or ministries. Um, all right, so that's the apostle. Now, the second one you looked at that week in lesson four was the prophet. I'm putting it in a different column. Did you notice? Who is the prophet primarily targeting when he is the believers? As a matter of fact, that's the verse I gave to you guys in Ezekiel 3. He says, I'm sending you to the house of Israel. I'm not sending you to a people of a foreign language or people who don't know. I'm sending you to your own people, right? So that's the prophet. The prophet's work is primarily within the church. That's their main target. Now, it doesn't mean the prophet doesn't ever go outside the church and make other kinds of evangelical declarations. In particular, if the prophet has a very strong evangelistic gift as well, that would make him more likely to want to go outside. But here's the issue. What is his primary focus? What's his emphasis on? It is, okay, his target audience is primarily believers. It can be future events, especially in the Old Testament, right? In the New Testament, although I, I'm, I'm a little vague on this, this one. You guys have to give me a little grace on this because I'm not as, as clear. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they don't give prophetic messages today because I believe they do. Um, but it's not canonized, right? So what does he primarily rely on? the canonized word of God, right? And so the things that he declares generally has to do with that which is already established in the word most of the time. Mine, especially when I've used my gift, I do not prophesy about things I've, you know, in the future. I sure wish I could, though, because it'd be kind of cool. But, <laughs> but of course, then people would not really like me either <laughs> because most of those messages are like, whoa, <laughs> right? <laughs> whoa messages. Okay, so they... The prophet preaches, he teaches, he can prophesy, okay? What is his emphasis on when he is preaching? It's a warning, almost every one of them. He is, he is fixated on the sins that he's seeing within the body of Christ. So what is his job? Rebuking and correcting, exactly. The prophet's job, how, how many of you guys know people that, that are very critical of other people? I mean, it, they immediately point out their sin and they immediately look for, it seems like they look for the negative most of the time in, in situations. However, they're, always, they're right. It's just they're very direct have you seen pastors we used to call them fire and brimstone preachers right you know turn or burn right okay so those people generally are not very well liked if you look at the historical record of the prophets in the old testament most of them were very lonely 
They were often outcast. Um, they, I mean, do you remember Elijah and Elisha and their, their life story when we did our Kings and Prophets study? Um, they often are rejected by the masses of people because their message is what? Repent, 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 right? Okay, so the, the emphasis then is to protect, right, the people of God and God's word, right, and to rebuke sin, to correct false teaching or teachers or to point out who that false teacher is. What you're saying is wrong. What you're saying, remember Baal, the, the all of the, the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel and was it Elijah? Okay, thank you. Elijah, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> and he's and he's rebuking them for all the things that they do, and then he proves them through God's working through him, proves them wrong, and basically destroys those that were doing that. But his his goal, his focus was to protect God's word, right? And to protect the people of God, to protect the standard of doctrine that's true versus the lies right to and to he doesn't do as as much about restoring but he wants them to be restored by repenting the restorer do you know who that might be which spiritual gift did we study this week exhortation once the prophet is done smashing him down, <laughs> the exhorter comes alongside. Did we, did we not just look at that this week with Paul and John Mark, where John Mark had failed, right? And Paul is like, no way, don't want that dude with me, man. He, he, he departed from us. He, you know, he, he, he fainted away, basically, in the work. And who was it that said, oh, no, I, I, and actually went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Paul. Can you imagine? He fought with him about it, and and he helped him. So the exhorter is the one who will come behind the prophet to do more restoration work, <laughs> and in that, and this is what's also very interesting. If a person is strongly rebuked, corrected, sin exposed, and they're not actually a believer, but they're just among the believers, what's going to happen to that person? They could become very cynical. They could even fall away, right? It could be the thing that chases them off. They're going, forget you. I don't want a thing to do with you, right? But the true believer, what happens? Conviction and repentance. And just like John Mark, what, what happened at the end? He became useful to Paul, which is hysterical. I'm going, boy, Paul had to eat his words on that one, didn't he? Yeah, because that gift came behind the prophet who rebuked, corrected, and exposed sin. And then he did his, can you see how there's, we have need of one another? Uh, but can you see how the prophet is probably not everyone's very favorite person in the room? But does your knowledge now of what their job is in the church help you to have more, um, what is the right word, just more allowance? to permit them to do the job that God needs them to do. How important is it to keep sin out of the church? How important is it to expose the false doctrines and teaching? 
like really important. Now, it's not to say that there aren't some of these other gifts that can do it as well, but nobody does it like the prophet because that prophet pulls no punches. I have a very, I have a very good friend who's a prophet. Whew. Not very many like her. I like her a lot because she will call it like it is. And I love that. And she is not a, afraid of words like blasphemy. <laughs> You know, when I was teaching on blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, when we did Ezekiel, she and I had a lot of conversations and there were some things going on in her church. And I was looking at this going, you know what, what's going on there is actually blasphemy. They're blaspheming God's name by defiling in the eyes of the world who God really is. They're saying about God, he's weak and impotent by doing the things that they are doing, that God can't provide for them because they have to help God out. And they're doing it by begging on the streets or having these bake sales and so forth that were taking up um, the attention away from God doing the work and away from the giving gift and away from the responsibility of the parishioner's gift. I mean, I get more annoyed by street corner churches who are out there begging from the unbelieving world than anyone else. I mean, that it just, my blood boils in me. That part of me is a little bit of that prophet in there. The prophet is the protector, okay? So let's try to be nice to the prophet, okay? He preaches, he teaches, he prophesies. His emphasis is to protect uh, the people of God and God's word. Uh, let's see, he, I'm going to put it here, uh, he rebukes, he exposes whatever is false, and it can be a variety of things. Uh, he also warns, right? He warns of judgment. If you don't repent, this was what's going to happen. Boy, I tell you, I, I, I've talked about this before about the railroad track commercial when I was a kid growing up, and it was a, it was a drug uh, commercial about don't do, don't do drugs and help your friends get off drugs, kind of a thing. And this girl who's on drugs is on the railroad track and the train is coming towards her and her friend is standing over here off to the side looking at her friend watching the train coming at her at her and she's having this conversation with the camera saying but if I tell her she's not gonna like me she's gonna be mad at me she's gonna you know in the meantime the track the train is coming it's gonna run right over her right the point is so what if she hates your guts at the moment you're saving her life. That's your prophet. That's your prophet. He, you may not like what he's saying at the moment or she, but they are warning you of impending problems. Okay, now we have an, okay, now, so this one's outside the church, and where is this one? Inside. I don't know. Did Lisa do all this with you guys already? Am I really giving you old information? No, totally different thought. Okay, good. All right. I hoped that would be the case. <laughs> okay, now the next one you did in lesson five was evangelist. And now that you're on a roll, <laughs> and then the other one was pastor teacher. 
So I'm going to put them in their appropriate columns. The evangelist obviously is for who? Inside or outside? Outside. And the pastor teacher is for? Inside, obviously, because your pastor pastors your church, right? Okay, so that is the gifting. Now, what do you know about the evangelist? What is his emphasis or her emphasis? Mm-hmm. It's to preach the gospel. To win souls, yeah. To win souls to Christ, basically, right? To win souls, to bring them into the church. That is his emphasis, the, the evangelist. That one was pretty simple. Were there any other points of interest that you wanted to uh, share with me that I may have missed? Okay, very interesting. Would you also say that could be true of the prophet gift, that although we're not all a prophet, are we all called to protect the word of God and actually call people out on sin on occasion? Even though we don't like to do it? I can guarantee you almost everyone in this room, if you have children, you've done it, <laughs> right? Um, but also among friends. I mean, I know that there have been, especially when I was young women more so than now, now all my friends are very mature. And they love the Lord, and they're so godly, I don't ever have to correct them. Almost always, right? <laughs> but I do remember as a young woman, this was a challenge for me, because there'd be things that would happen, and I would be like, you know, I wanted to correct them, but I was like that woman standing over here with my friend on the railroad track, and the train's coming, and I didn't want to tell her because I didn't want her to be mad at me, right? But we are all called to do it, aren't we? to a measure, but is there a distinction between those who are just in general called to and those who are spiritually gifted? What is the distinction in that? What makes it distinctive for you that you can tell a person who just kind of does it because they, they have to in the moment? Hmm? Okay, comfort level. That's a good word. I am a lousy evangelist. Did I tell you, most of you guys know this. I don't know if you know this, uh, Kristen, or not, but I was a corporate chaplain for about five years or so, and I worked for a ministry where I was supposed to witness and lead people to the Lord. I was horrible. I was so bad. I never let it. Well, as, well, I had one guy one time, but then I knew it wasn't actually a Christian. It didn't take long to realize. He, he had just said it because he was feeling bad in the moment, but there, were, there was no heart conviction in it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, big difference between a person who has a passion for it and a person who does it because in the moment there's opportunity given, right? Okay, so that's true. Now, evangelist. Now, pastor, teacher. Now, there ha you had a question last week, and she brought it up again this week as well. Um, do you see a distinction for the use of this gift, pastor, teacher? Is it two gifts or is it one? And do you think it really matters? <laughs> Yes, a, a pastor. Yes, so in many ways, especially after doing teacher this week, we definitely see a distinction, right? I personally still tend to believe that it's actually speaking of two, even though I know they had some good um, reasonings why they felt it to be one. Is it possible, though, that what God does is those he's going to call to lead in the office 
of pastor. And this brings up a subject. Is there a distinction between the office and the spiritual gift? Can a woman have a spiritual gift of pastor? Absolutely. Why? What does that gift do? Yes. And with, with the pastor teacher, where is his emphasis? Does it, is it to external, to go outside the church, or to really work within? It's to work within. And so a pastor gift, just as a person who, it could be, it could be, um, uh, Carol is nurturing these three women in her little circle here, right? And she meets with them regular. They go have lunch together a lot. They, you know, she checks up on them. She says, how are you doing? What's going on? That's the pastor. They're caregivers. They love that caregiving Ugh, stuff, right? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, pastor's wife, I bet you get to see this a lot. A lot of nurturing, a lot of caring, a lot of watching over. What else? I said it all. Said it all. Okay, Miss <laughs> Pastor's wife. <laughs> okay, so and is do you have a pastoring gift by chance? No. Okay, there you go. <laughs> but see, that's good because God needs two different uh, perspectives in one household. Yeah, exactly. My husband and I are, are totally on different, everybody knows that. We're on totally different palettes altogether. My my manifold is totally different from his manifold. <laughs> okay, so the pastor, his emphasis is there is to shepherd believers. Okay, emphasis to shepherd believers. Okay, um, and by the way, does he do does he do so as a pastor with any measure of authority generally? What about if it's the gift of a female who's pastoring but not pastoring a church, rather just exercising the gift of pastoring? Do they tend to have that same measure of authority within their circle? Yes, there's a leadership of quality that goes with it. It's a lot like the apostle who goes in and he seems to have this authority to establish something and to set the rules and to correct things and to get it in motion and to put it in place, right? The pastor also, or pastor teacher in this case, has the authority to uh, lead the people and to set expectations and to kind of lay out the the rules for the way things are going to go within his ministry work, whatever that is, or her ministry work. So I think it's just important to understand there is a distinction, however, and you don't want to get them confused. The distinction is there is a pastor who has an office because he has a church, but what you pray for pray, pray, pray for, is that you have a pastor of your church who actually has a gift of both pastoring and teacher. That's what you pray for. I can tell you it doesn't always happen. I've had a lot of churches through our military years of moving, moving, moving. And when you don't get a pastor who wants to pastor because it's not his thing, but he's, you know, something else, some of them are nothing else, but <laughs> that's really sad too. That happens occasionally. But you want your pastors to have a, a, some kind of pastoring quality because that's his primary role as a pastor over a church is to nurture and care for others, right? So pastor, 
emphasis to shepherd, and shepherd says it all. It, it gives you that extended uh, definition. Um, they desire to care for and feed God's people. Okay, so that, and if you want to break, break it down as I do, all I'm saying is in this particular verse, was that Ephesians 4? We talked about the pastor teacher, I think it was. And he says, um, he's talking about offices basically in that passage of, of pray that you have these basically. Why? Because you need them to establish your churches. Without these four in place somewhere in the, in the realm of your church, your church isn't going to blossom and grow. You need those four basic um giftings or five basic giftings I would say in order to get a church really going all the others then come along at uh, after basically and they support it which is exactly what he said it's for the common good and we have need of one another right and once you get in there and you start organizing a church you know who you need you need Lois <laughs> right <laughs> why do you need Lois because she can, she can organize. She's an administrator, right? Okay, I always pick on Lois because she's my favorite. Okay, all right. Now, now let's go on to our, our this week's homework. So that kind of lays down what we did uh, in the first two weeks of looking at giftings. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. You can now see that basically what is showing us here is in these gifts, we're seeing outside the church workers and inside the church workers. Yes, there can be a bleed over. Yes, sometimes they reach. Sometimes if you get a pastor who is who's strong in evangelism, you're really, your goose is cooked because he wants to be outside all the time. He wants to lead the lost. He, and every sermon is about salvation rather than feeding. And so you can really you can really destroy a church if you get too strong of an evangelist as your senior pastor, and that's all he wants to talk about is you going out there and witnessing to somebody, right? Not that that's not important once in a while, right? But every week, has anybody had a church like that? I have more than once. Oh yeah, and it ch it chases people away. So that's why in that passage it says have this is what you want for your establishing giftings is your pastor teacher, your prophet, your apostle, and your evangelist because they're the ones that are going to go out and establish those. Make sense? Okay, now you've got a pattern that you can continue to work on. You can figure out as we look at each gift, is it a gift primarily to outside the church or to inside the church? And if it's outside the church, it's for the purpose of bringing them in, obviously, right? Okay, teaching is the next thing that we looked at then. Let's look at the gift of teaching. This one should be pretty simple and shouldn't take us too long to get through because I thought it was really obvious, right? And we're not going to add, we're not going to go through every scripture and write every one down. What I just want to know in general is how, what did you learn about the teaching gift? And the first thing we looked at were the examples of Jesus. Why is that a good one to look at? Because he's the best teacher there was, right? If, he's, if anybody's going to do it right, it would be him. One of the things I loved about it, though, was, <laughs> as I, especially the first time I did spiritual gifts, was to realize that not everybody uh, sat underneath Jesus' teaching, listened to him, obeyed him, or liked what he said. Now, thank goodness. It makes me feel so much better, <laughs> right? Okay, so tell me what did you see about uh, Jesus' example for us? 
I think it was day two and three, two in particular. Oh, one also? Okay, sorry. Okay. Yeah, because, well, definition, we could look at the definition. Let's look at the definition of example. Where's my eraser? Here it is. Let me, um, let me put the, um, the definition up here for teacher. Okay. What is the, the definition for teacher? 1320, correct? Okay. I love these titles. From now on, <laughs> what is it? Doctor. Oh, doctor, okay. Do teacher would be, oh, that's interesting. I, didn't, I missed that one, doctor, huh? Doctor, I didn't know that. Hmm. Master is the one I had in mind. <laughs> Master. Obviously, it's speaking mostly of Jesus, but the concept of master is what? What is that concept behind that, that word as a definition? Okay, they've, okay. Met or respected and followed after or submitted to in some measure so in a way that's why sometimes people confuse the spiritual gift of a teacher as if they have authority and that's why some churches for many years forbid women to exercise their spiritual gift of teaching especially with men present because of the confusion we're going to look at that confusion in just a second but it's because the idea of the teacher does come with it a sense of authority so the idea of master and having some authority concerning the subject matters is all though okay i don't have authority over your life i don't have authority over the church i don't have authority to dictate anything to anyone all i have authority over is the mastering of the subject matter and and me being able to therefore impart it to you right so what else is uh, a teacher instructor so it's pretty simple yeah uh, the, uh, the other one was the word teaching, and it was just one number off, 1321, and it, mean, it meant providing instruction or to what? To direct, okay. Okay, Though that would be the student. But one that imparts learning, yes. Okay, yes. Okay, so what is their emphasis? Inside or outside the church? Inside. Why is that? Who? This is this is why I was a really terrible corporate chaplain because, you know, I would get in there and I would want to teach a lesson to everyone. Do you believe what I'm studying right now? You know, and I wanted to teach, but the, I was talking to mostly unbelievers. And they're like going, meow, right? So the teacher is not very gifted out in the world of the unbelieving because we don't relate to the things that, that they are interested in or the things that might draw them in, number one. This number two, when it comes to the word of God, how is it that I am able to impart a truth to you and you go, ah, ding, 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 ding? There you go. First Corinthians chapter two says things are spiritually discerned. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. And without the Spirit, 
It's foolishness, right? Okay, so primarily emphasis is to believers in the church. Okay, so now let's look at Jesus' example. What kind of things? Uh, M. <laughs> Sorry. All right, what kind of things did Jesus give as an example to us? Where did he ta teach? When did he teach? What? Everywhere. Teach everywhere, anywhere, right? Teaches anywhere. So, anywhere. Temples, synagogues, boats, right? Boats, even. Um, I thought about, and what about when? Anytime, right? I, there was one of them that said, um, there it was. In John 8, 2, it says he taught what time of day? Early in the morning. Now, it wasn't in your list, but do you remember Nicodemus? At night, right? Morning, noon, and night. It did not matter. Jesus was available to teach at any time, right? Any time, day or night. Have any of you met me in the grocery store? <laughs> what do we end up talking about? <laughs> Almost always something biblical, right? And even if I'm not on duty like I am now doing my exercising of my gift, I can't help myself. If I am with you or in your presence, I'm going to probably teach something just because it comes out of my mouth and I can't, I'm really just totally not in control of that. It's, it's who I am. This is why my son allows me, I think, the privilege to keep preaching to him even though he's not a believer. And yet he accepts it from me because he just knows it's who I am. I, it, more from the time he was a little one I was talking about things of God and if I learned anything I came home and taught it to my kids I couldn't wait to tell somebody guess what I now know right okay so anytime day or night anywhere um, what is his purpose for teaching why did Jesus teach uh, there was one in Matthew there's one in Mark yeah. Boy, and I tell you, I cannot tell you how true that is for me. I am like that poor girl. She doesn't have a clue. And I just feel really bad that they just don't understand. If they just understood, they would go, oh, okay, God, that's fine. Um, how many people, um, especially early in their faith walk in our generation, rebel against the idea of submitting to under authority of a man, right? Boy, was that a hot topic when I was young. But as soon as I figured it out, I went, well, if they would just explain it, nobody would have a problem with this. Why is everybody fussing about this, right? It's because they didn't know. They just didn't understand. And so then I felt bad for everybody, so I wanted to explain it to them. Sometimes I was explaining it to people who did not want to hear, 
right? It was, it could be a problem. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, he felt compassion. He wanted them to understand, right? To, he wanted to impart understanding. How many times did Jesus teach something, usually with a parable, and then had to come back afterwards and he, and he would say to his disciples, why do you not understand? <laughs> and then he would restate it and explain it again, right? All right, so he wants to give understanding. Um, in Matthew 15, 17 to 20, I found that one really interesting. Somebody flip open to that reference if you can find it. Oh, well, what, what, but I found. Oh, okay. Well, oh, but it actually made a lot of sense to me. I loved it. Oh my gosh. Isn't that funny? See, I can apply it anywhere. In, in 15, 17 to 20, he's talking to them about teaching and he's teaching them something from the known, from the unknown. He, he goes to the known to teach what is unknown. Does that make sense in that particular passage, if that's the one you had? And I loved it. I thought that is so true. And Jesus did that all the time. He would take parables. He would take things that had an, that was earthly, known through the earthly in order to, to make them understand the heavenly spiritual truth behind it. So I actually like that one. So I'm glad you. Okay. I like this one better. So you did really good, Jan. Thank you. I thought it was really good because of the fact that, that that is what a teacher does. Do you not think that that is what most teaching, if you're a good teacher, that you try to make things understood from what's not known by explaining, you know, I might talk about quilting if you're a quilter and to explain to you a spiritual truth, right? It's just like when you do this, when you quilt, blah, 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 blah. And see, that's what God does when he is working in your life. Right. So it's taking the known in order to explain the unknown. And I thought that I actually thought it was excellent. OK. All right. Um, what did he teach? What he taught? Yeah. And, the, and it goes it was quite lengthy. We looked at Luke and Matthew, Luke 24, Matthew 19, Luke 17. And in all three of those are uh, particular passages. Uh, uh, he covered the scriptures. He also covered what else? Oh, I love that. Okay, that's in the Matthew one. He covered the subject of divorce, which is by point, what was he doing? What was he establishing for them? What was he establishing by talking to them about divorce? Right to give them the doctrine behind it, right? So he was teaching their doctrines. He taught doctrines on, what was it, divorce and marriage and I can't remember what the other one was now. But they were like, oh, creation. He talked about creation as well, right? So in all of those, basically he went back to the original points of what did God establish in the beginning, right? Okay. So he taught doctrines. And in Luke 17, what was he teaching there? Not It was doctrine, but it was a different doctrine rather than things that were established at the beginning. It, 
was speaking about things to come in the future. So he talked about eschatology. So teachers are to kind of basically cover the whole gamut. They're responsible basically to know from Genesis to Revelation and teach it all. There's really no subject matter that we should avoid, right? We should all, especially as students in, in this kind of setting, we should be able to say, okay, I don't understand this. I don't think I agree with you on this point. Let's hash it out. And that's the point to real t teaching is to help a person connect the docs, don't violate your known doctrines, make sure you understand the context, and, and connect it so that you come to at least a fairly good interpretation, right? You do your best to come to good interpretation. Um, and then there was a warning given also when you looked at teachers, what? about the faults. So what does that tell you about teachers that stand before you? What do you need to, what's your responsibility? Why do you need to know the word if you're sitting under me? I'm your, here to teach you. Just, ah, there you go. That's right, because you need to make sure, and as a matter of fact, there's a scripture in, is it 17? Yes, Acts 17, 11, you might want to write it down, where Paul gives um, basically a affirmation to the Bereans, and he says they're of more noble-mindedness than the Thessalonians, because why? They heard what I said, and then they went to the scriptures to be sure it was true. So as a student, what does that tell you about your teacher before you? You need, until you've established that you can actually trust them and that that their teaching is sound, you need to be checking it out. Don't just, I can tell you, especially for those of you who like to surf the YouTubes and the videos and whatever and listen to different pastors, different where, you don't know who these pastors are. Unless you're going into their ministry and finding out what their background is, I do that, but how many of you do that? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> so the warning for you is if you don't really know who, the teacher is and you don't know from what context they're coming to you from what is their denominational background what is their training what is their message is it accurate so you need to make sure that you're checking it out so there's a warning in God's word concerning teachers that not all teachers can be trusted sadly not everyone who stands at the pulpit can be trusted either you have to know, are they teaching truth or not? So you need to be sure you go second, or First Timothy 6, 3 to 5, basically says you need to be sure your teacher is teaching sound words, doctrines, and conforming to godliness, right? They want to lead, you are, if your teacher is leading you away from a wholehearted uh, love for God and godliness in your, in, or, or um, holiness in your living, then that teacher is not teaching sound doctrine. Okay, and so you need to, need to know that. Uh, Colossians 2, what did it say in there about those false teachers? I think it was 6 to 8. Right, so again, a sound teacher teaches what? The, he teaches... The scriptures, he teaches the Old Testament, the words of the prophets, right? He teaches uh, scriptures. He teaches eschatology. He teaches doctrines, all of it being right out of God's word. But a false teacher often will do what? 
They will come in with whatever is fanciful in the day or the moment. They are on to the new fad of the moment, whatever the new thing is, to tantalize you. There's a, a pa another passage I thought to look it up and I didn't, but it says that in, it, basically toward the end times in, the, in that day, men will gather around them teachers who will do what? Tickle their ears. And what you and I are responsible for, me too, even though I'm a teacher, me too, I'm responsible to make sure if I'm going online and listening to things so that I come back here then and share it with you, I better be sure I've checked it out. And I do. <laughs> but, just to, but I could be wrong. I could still make a mistake because I'm human. Right? I'm just, a, I'm just your sister in Christ. And so you need to check it out. So if I've given something in error, you need to come the next week and say, hey, I listened to that. And you know, do you know that this guy is this or that or whatever? And let me know. Because we need to keep each other not only accountable, but we need to protect one another. So that's what the warning is there for concerning teachers is you do have to be careful that your teacher is actually holding fast to the sound doctrines of truth and not going off on some kind of fanciful new thing, new fling that's out there. And there's a lot of them that come around. Okay. All right. So that takes care of teaching. Any questions? Pretty simple. Yeah. How many of you have, have the gift of teaching? Yes, I knew you did. Yay. So why are you not teaching? No, just kidding. I'm just, we'll talk later. <laughs> okay. I love that. Okay. Um, the next one is gift of exhortation. All right. Let's do the word. Um, this one's really interesting. <coughs> exhortation. It's 3874, right? Paraclesis. And by definition, what does it mean? Do you all have your definitions in front of you? Okay, share with me. Okay. I don't know that. See, you got me. Good girl. I love that. I'm going to learn Latin. Hortations. That's our new word for the day. Oh, I love that. Cool. I did not get that one from my word study, but I believe she's correct. Okay. To come to one's aid. Okay, calling. Say, tell me again, calling to one's aid. Okay, it's really funny how different dictionaries phrase it slightly different. Okay. Okay. Yes, I saw that like a defense attorney. And this is really cool when we got into the, the next part of the homework on that. Okay, so exhortation, also um, the word consolation, comfort, solace, that which affords comfort or refreshment or encouragement, right? Okay.
um, solace, refreshment. Uh, defense was another. To strive to appease by entreaty. In other words, if somebody has gone off the path a little bit in something, you are trying to bring them back in, but you do it in a very tactful way. You're, you guys are the ones who have got grace, right? You've got a way about making people eat their spinach and like it. I don't have that gift very much, I don't think. I don't think I'm a huge exhorter, but I try to work on it, however. Okay, so now it says there were two verses that were given to him. One was about Jesus, and the other was about the Holy Spirit. Now, let me see if I can find that page, because that was, where are we? We are in day four, correct? I got to tell you, let me show you something I did on my homework because I, I, it made it so much simpler for me. And I don't know if you had trouble or not with this, but when she asked us to look up all these verses and then to try to draw information, different points out, here's what I did. I made a chart where I put my scripture verse over here, and then over here I answered basically three questions. How, where, and when they taught what they taught and the result of their teaching and I just so then I could look down in the row here and had everything categorized when I was done does that make sense to you and if you want to do that in your homework at any point on any of the other gifts if it'll help you organize your thoughts a little bit better and you'll see it more clearly when you're done it's just a little trick I I don't know how I came up with it but was like I was getting so lost because my notes were getting so messy and I had information here and information there and then I couldn't recall where I where I was putting it and I was trying to go back to find it and I was so I was getting frustrated this this is the part of this the spiritual gift study that I remember was frustrating was we have so many cross references and to kind of line things up into categories where you can see it clearly and not feel like you're overwhelmed and then you forget half of it anyway after as soon as you finish that one you turn the page you're going now where was that and you you spend half an hour looking for that verse again you know I know I saw it where was it so this helped me a lot because once I got it here then I could go oh yeah and then I knew what even if I had a question about a certain subject matter I could look under the right column and then I go oh yeah there it is it was it made it a lot easier so I'm hoping that is a little tip on doing homework that might help you all right, so now I was looking for day four, wasn't I, when I got sidetracked. See how easy it is to sidetrack me? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I love you. I love you anyway. Okay. Okay, so it was John 14, 16. That was the scripture. And he and it said, uh, what? Do you have that one handy? Can you read it for me? Mm -hmm. Okay, and then the other one was for uh, also, well, no, that was the other one. 
the other one was on the uh, Jesus as the advocate. Okay, read that one. Oh, sorry. I thought you had it because I've been looking from. Okay, when you looked at the word helper and then you also looked at the word advocate, what did you discover? They are the same word. Isn't that interesting? Well, then came through a little tricky thing in there to us, and she said, now I want you to look up the word another. And did you all go, what was that about? Okay, but this is so exciting. I mean, I loved this. My homework, uh, I've got the best. We, um, Kristen and I were talking about earlier. I have a Lagos Bible program, and on it are my uh, Greek word studies, and there's like four or five, six of them in, in my collection, right? And so what happens is I open up the Strong's, and it's an, it's an expanded Strong's concordance. I click on it, open it up, and it'll give me a definition, and they'll give me a link to another book, like to my Dictionary of Biblical Languages. So I just have to click on it over here. My Dictionary of Biblical Languages opens up. It expounds on it from a little bit different perspective, gives me a little bit more insight. And then I have to kind of pick the one that I think is the correct one. And then I can click on another link, and it'll take me to the one that's my Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. So I end up with like at least three definitions. Sometimes I can do more, and it helps me to build. So in doing this, when I looked up the word another, and I'm just going to talk, I'm not going to, I'm not writing it down. I didn't even put it on the board. I just want to talk you through this because it was so cool, you guys. Um, another, the word allos. Did you see that? Two, 257, A-L-L-O-S. Oh, did I type the wrong number in? Allon. Okay. All right. So what? by definition, what does it mean? Another. Very good. Numerical difference of the same sort. Now, what would be a problem with that being not of the same sort? More than different. That would mean the Holy Spirit and Jesus are different. And what is the problem with that doctrine? Yes, the three in one God is one God. This is why in Deuteronomy where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, right? And one of the things that if you're witness to Jewish people is they, they have a problem with us worshiping Jesus because they see him as a separate uh, deity. They don't see him in the triune God. They don't really see the Trinity in God at all. Um Although they recognize the work of the Holy Spirit, they see God as God only, right? And so in this definition, he says it's the word, it adds the word one besides. In other words, not it, it's not just that one, but it's besides that, it's another one. So it adds it numerically. That's all it does. It multiplies it basically, denotes numerical and division, but not quantitative differences meaning the qualities, the characteristics, the attributes are not different. Isn't it? I've never seen a word where I got a, ver a very clear definition of the triune God. Trinity is a hard one to explain to people, isn't it? 
This word another does it. It gives it by definition right here. Did you know in the Koine Greek, there's another word for another? There's this another where there's no distinction in qualitative uh, function, that they are of the same character, they have the same attribute, but then there's another word that really means another. It's I didn't take, I came on this path to you and I went another path home. And that were like, for instance, we had a prophet that did that one time, right? Where God said to him, don't go by the same path home, right? You remember that? Okay, that's another road. But in this case, it's another. I'm going to give you another helper. But this another helper is simply numerically addition to the one, yet they're the same. I loved it. I was so excited. Okay, and it's going to be on your notes when it comes to you. So it's in my chart. I just didn't want to spend a lot of time writing it. It's really hard. So another means adds one besides. It denotes numerical indistinction, but no qualitative differences. Now, I thought about Colossians 1.13. Can somebody look that up real quick? Colossians 1.13? Because this verse came to my mind when I was looking at this, and I went, oh, that's exactly what that verse is saying. Someone have that handy? You want to read it for me? Come on, you girls. I got to have a little help here. Thank you. That's Colossians 1.13. Okay, the, I, I got the wrong verse, didn't I? The one that says he is the image of the invisible God. Okay, sorry. Okay, so he is the image of the invisible God. That word image means the word stamp, and it's basically the same as this, another. Isn't that cool? So I loved it because it actually links this, this doctrinal uh, truth into the language itself, and only the Koine Greek could have done that. I mean, the Koine Greek, one of the things that God so supernaturally worked was the development of the Koine Greek, you know, under the uh, the reign of Alexander the Great. And he made the language uh, be developed by these experts, and he wanted it so precise that there would be absolutely no question if, if Alexander sent out an order to one of his generals out in the field that when they received the order, they knew exactly what he was saying. There would be no doubt in their mind that this is what he means. So they made the language that precise. Isn't that exciting? So this word another, there's another another. It doesn't mean the same thing at all. It means another. But this another means another but the same. I love that. Okay. I got it more excited. Okay. Thus, <laughs> thus basically, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The triune God who within each person is co-equal and same in character and attributes, but each personage having their own distinct position. Now, this made me think of um, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, where he says there's differences of ministries, but the same spirit. There are differences of effects, but the same Lord, there's differences of works or something like that, but the same God who does all things in all, right? And so what, again, it's kind of the idea that each of them are the same, right? But yet there's another and another and another, and it's broke down into the triune God. Okay. I thought that was insightful. Okay. You guys should get, jump up and down, get a little more excited. Okay. Make me feel better. <laughs>
Okay, because the, the other another means not of the same nature, form, class, kind. So by definition, the meaning is different. But the other one is not. It's just numerical another. Okay, um, all right, Barnabas. Let's go to Barnabas' example. That was really good. We talked about it just briefly earlier. We've got about 15 minutes. And I wanted to get into how to handle a difficult passage if we have time. So depending on how quickly we get through Barnabas here. What did we learn through Barnabas' example about the exhortation? What qualities did you see in him? What were some of the things that he was doing in Acts 4, Acts 9, Acts 15? 2 Timothy 4 was the conclusion of the matter. So he speaks on behalf of another, correct? Is what he did. He In that case, he was speaking out against Paul, for Paul was wanting to basically abandon um, Mark, John Mark. Now, the first one, though, is Paul is Paul, and, and with Paul, what did Paul do in that one? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Barnabas stood up for a weaker brother or, um, or I'm just going to put for a brother. I'm going to put it that way. He wasn't necessarily a weaker brother, but he wasn't trusted, right? He still didn't have the trust of the masses. So that was Acts 4. I know. Isn't that cool? And Barnabas simply means what? Son of encouragement. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Okay. He stood up for the brother in Acts 4. He speaks on behalf of another. This was with John Mark. That was in 15, right? In Acts 15. What, what, so what happened there? What did Paul want to do? He just basically wanted to stump up. And can you really blame him? Can you really blame Paul for wanting to just walk away? Because what was his concern? Yeah, when they were in the trenches before, he he did not stand with them, and he left them in a lurch, basically, it sounds like. Now, how is it then that Barnabas saw this differently? What is the spiritual gifting of Barnabas versus Paul? Yeah, there you go. Now, see, you know, this is what I'm saying, how valuable I think it is to really understand the spiritual giftings and what motivates different people. Because then instead of criticizing Paul, you go, okay, I get it, Paul. But yay for Barnabas, right? Because what happens later with Barnabas? Or I mean with Mark? Yeah. Paul literally called for him by name. And he said about him now, what? He is useful to service. He's useful to me for service. That is a restored brother. Knowledge restored, but what else? What had Barnabas done for his brother? Okay. 
He matured him in faith by standing with him. If nothing, he may not have done one thing to teach him anything. Who knows? I'm sure he did. But but he, not necessarily that he had to instruct him, but by simply coming alongside of him and, and standing with him, not giving up on him. Have you guys ever been in that place before where you know you failed? in some manner or another in your relationship with God or in a ministry, you let the ball drop and you feel so bad and everybody's scowling at you, you know, and the girls and you show up for it and they all scoot over, you know, and there you sit alone, right? I mean, it can happen. It happens to me. <laughs> I don't know if it happened to you guys, but maybe it's just, you know, just because I'm just that kind of person. They give the benefit of the doubt. They 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 are they console, they exhort, um, they um, encourage. Right? I mean, this is this is a guy to have around. I want one of these guys in my team, right? But then my prophet dick gift sometimes gets in the way, and I'm like, no, you have to straighten these people up. Make them repent. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. So this is good. Now, what is their work then concerning um, just some of the other things that they do besides consoling, besides helping maturing people? What else? We saw Acts 13. And we saw Hebrews 12, 4 to 6. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of them, they were even warning, right? Warning. So an, uh, an exhorter will also warn. So they warn people sometimes, and they also warn of unbelief. Yes. Okay, and that's in what verse? Uh huh. Okay. They kind of, some of these kind of run together. They almost all said similar things. Did you not find that? Okay, so it wasn't too difficult to, at the end. So, um, by definition, then, what would you say about the gift of exhortation? Who is it primarily to in the church? It's again, it's it's inside the church because their job is to take the fallen, the weak brother, the damaged or the crushed in spirit, the one who's struggling maybe or that others have rejected for any reason. And they are the ones who come alongside of them. It's different than the mercy gift, however. So you're going to see that when we get to the mercy gift. Because his job is really to propel that person forward, right? He doesn't want to just come in and give a hug. He wants to come in and push them along. And sometimes they walk alongside, arm in arm. They walk with them until they can let go and then back off. And that person keeps going and is able to walk on their own. 
right? So sometimes that you'll have an encourager in your life for a while and then you think, well, where did they go? Well, you were encouraged. <laughs> you got well, right? I love that gift. That's a great gift to have. Churches need lots more of those. Okay, now I want to talk about then this issue about how to handle a difficult passage. We didn't have time, but I've got 10 minutes so we can cram it in. And I really do want to because it's such an important one. How many of you have ever had the experience of saying um, this passage that was given to us, but, I, but uh, do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, right? A woman is not to speak in the church, basically, is what the uh, application has been through uh, many, many years. It's nice to see that in recent years we are finally getting beyond that. But how do you defend that teaching? What is it that you learned here by looking at 1 Timothy 2.12? How did you handle that difficult verse? What were your steps? Well, let's go back to our basic 101s. What are your pillars? Okay, do not violate, oh, no, sorry, sorry. Um, let context rule for interpretation. Okay, that's the first rule. And what's the second rule? There you go, never violate known doctrine okay so here's the thing then that you have to do and it's it's a process that takes some time you have to really think it through but the first thing you need to do is go back and look at what are the doctrines that we have concerning spiritual gifts um are there any teachings in these fundamental teachings about how you get a gift, when you get a gift, what the purpose of the gift is? Were there any teaching in any one of those four major passages that give us the doctrines that teaches that a gift is given relative to gender? No. So all the genders get all the giftings, right? Apostles can be women. Prophets can be women. Pastor, teacher can be women. There is, however, distinction between office and spiritual gifting. We do want to take note of that, correct? So once you've established that God gives gifts to both men and women, that's, that's the first, your known doctrine. He gives all gifts to both men and women. Okay. That's the first point. Um, did we have an example in scripture where we did see a woman teaching a man? How much authority did you think a, an example like that holds then? If it's, if it's in the word of God, was it rebuked? Was it displayed or demonstrated in a way that in, implied it was acceptable and good? Yes. So we have, we know that God gives gifts to all men. We have an we have a scripture demonstrating a woman teaching a man and that and, and that it was acceptable it was a good example that's an acts 18 with uh, priscilla and was it who was the guy Aquila, 
Priscilla Nicola. No, she was teaching someone else. Pril uh, that's her husband. No, but she was teaching someone else. Uh, um, Apollos, thank you. Okay. Priscilla taught Apollos. Okay. All right. So she had to correct. She had to come in and correct him, right? Because what was going on with him? Yeah. Basically, he only had. But the first part, he needed a, a Paul Harvey moment, right? The rest of the story, right? Okay, so that's what what Priscilla did for him. She came in and gave him the rest of the story. And, you know, I've always thought about this in, in my personal life because um, when you're out traveling the world, basically, and you have dinners and you have functions and you sit or you stand in the grocery store, which is where I do a lot of my teaching, um, and you have conversations with people, and, and what do you do at that moment that you realize they don't know something, and they're, they're a man, maybe they're even a pastor or a missionary, which, by the way, I've had a lot of those in my life through the years because of living in Turkey for eight years and you know, being military and traveling a lot, so I've had that a lot of experience. So what, am I not supposed to, to speak up and say something because I'm a woman and he's a man? Would that make any sense to anybody? What if, for instance, in my case, we were living in Turkey, there were missionaries there, but they got very little spiritual feeding because they were the ones in the mission field and there wasn't a support system for them, right? They were the ones birthing churches and reaching out. So when they would come into contact with us military people and someone like myself, which I was teaching at that time, and they would come to me, I had a... a James and a John in my class. I thought that was funny. <laughs> they were both Catholic. They were in Turkey at the time as missionaries. But guess who they came to every week for Bible study? Should I have turned them away? And the answer is no. That would not make any sense at all. If their, if their need is for spiritual continu continuation and spiritual training, and both these men were very young. They were like, you know, barely out of college. Um, <laughs> And that what they had need for was a support system for them. And they didn't have any other support. So I'm just saying the practicality even of it, if you think it through, does not make sense that you would read and interpret a scripture that says a woman is not to teach a man, right? So now the next step, once you say, okay, we've got a scripture that says it's okay, we see our basic doctrines do not forbid a gifting to be given to you know, according to gender. Um, therefore, the, even the exercise of it does not seem to make sense that it would. But now let's go to the next point. Let's look at the text itself of which this came out of, 1 Timothy chapter 2. What do we know about the context for 1 Timothy? So context is the next thing you want to look at. What was going on in 1 Timothy? Who was writing? Paul was writing to Timothy. Why was he writing? What kind of a letter is this? What does he do in the body of this letter? Do you know? Paul. 
Okay. Yes, because he's going to take up the mantle basically and take up the work where Paul's leaving off, right? As Paul dies, Timothy is to take up the mantle and, and carry on the work. So he's exhorting him. Yes. What else is he doing? Obviously. He's instructing. Yeah. And what else do you think he's doing? Do you think they've got it all right in that church? Do you think they're doing everything well and perfect and they don't need any kind of correction or rebuke even? Yeah. Okay, so a lot like the letter into 1 Corinthians, he's doing the same thing. He's warning, he's rebuking, he's instructing, he's, he's exhorting, he's doing all these things together. This is a church that had some things that were off. They weren't doing quite right. And one of them comes in in 1 Timothy 2 where the subject of these women comes up. Now, when you look at the subject of these women, what was the the instruction there for? 1 Timothy 1.9. Let's look at 1 Timothy It was, uh, I'm going to put it here, for uh, Timothy to, um, okay, so these are things that he wanted Timothy to implement into his church. It basically was an instruction from a father saying, look, Timothy, you need to get these things right. We're birthing at the church here. He was he knew he was at the beginning of all this. This was a brand new thing and so there was an extreme caution that you saw and actually if you look through the book of Acts, all of the New Testament for that matter, you see over and over um, the church councils, the early apostles, and Paul in particular is constantly trying to reign in the church, guarding against false teaching, making sure the church does not uh, worship God in an uh, in an improper manner, that everything they do brings God glory, right? And that they do so for the common good of the body, to build it up, to strengthen it, to grow it, right? So he's correcting, he's instructing, he's exhorting. He's teaching Timothy to basically implement these things he's teaching into his church and or to correct things that are going on in his church. So what does he say in 1 Timothy 2, 9? So let's put on here, correction. What does he want the women to do? Mm -hmm. Yes. Keep going. Okay. Okay, so he wants them to have proper, basically proper and modest behavior. Things that are appropriate for people who do what? Those who profess God. So what does that tell you about the women in that church? What was going on? Uh, We don't have that going on in our churches, right? Where women are coming really dolled up and a little more risque than you'd like and showing more leg and other things than they should. And we don't have that in our churches. No. 
Now, does this mean that Paul is saying, I don't want women to be pretty? They can't comb their hair and fix themselves up and put on some earrings? Is that what he's saying? No, it's not what he's saying. Why did he make mention of that? Do we know the context of the era in which he's speaking to and the culture into which he's speaking? Who are the ones in that culture at that time who dressed in that manner and braided their hair and did these kind of extravagant external things? The harlots. A lot of them were the harlots and the temple prostitutes just down the road, right? And he's saying, I don't want you to, for your beauty women of the church, to come from these external things like the world is trying to get attention from the world by the way that they physically look. What does he want of godly women? Propriety, what's proper, what's decent and what honors God, right? He wants you to have an internal beauty that honors the Lord. So the correction here is what they were doing wrong and now what he wants them to do correct because these women were basically then, they were um, they were acting improper as far as modesty is concerned. Um and not proper, correct? Then it goes on to the rest of it, and what else does it cover? Okay, why? Who's being, you know what's interesting to me is she stopped us in, in uh, First Timothy, she, I think we just did 13 to 14, or, or right in that area, right, wasn't it? First Timothy 2, 12 to something. Oh, it was only 12? That one verse? Oh, well. Okay. Context, girls. <laughs> Context is everything, right? What follows chapter 2? Yes. And who are they? The men. Why, why is it? What, and how, is it really specific about it being men that take these positions? Yes. It says the man. Husband of but one. Wife. Okay, now, does that mean that what she's doing is exclude that he what he is doing is excluding women and being basically prejudiced or or um, against basically women in holding any kind of position? Is that what he's trying to say there? What were the women doing previous to this? I got to get mine open because I'm. One second. There you go. Okay, so because one of the things that it talks about in there is these are women. I think it's in verse 14. It talks about the fact that why is it that they must do this? For uh, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. Because of what? Because of Adam and Eve's what? What happened with Adam and Eve? What was the problem? Pardon? Okay, she was deceived by the serpent, but in her deception, what did she do? She took Adam with her. Who was supposed to be the lead? 
Adam. So was God's design from the beginning that the man was to be the spiritual leader and the protector over the family? He's a priest, a protector, and a, and a provider, by the way, just in case you didn't know that. I'd love to do a teaching on roles, God's designed roles. They are so good for us. So there is a design role. It really was established right from the beginning with Genesis 2, 3, right in the beginning. He put them in the garden. He had you know, Adam gave him work to do. She was to be the child bearer and the home caregiver and the, and the helpmate to her husband, right? And then what happens is, here comes the tempter. What does the tempter do? He leads her astray, and she takes the lead in this then. She comes back to her husband and says, here, eat. And what does he do? He listens to her, right? So in doing that, he he submitted himself unto his wife. He let her be the spiritual leader. He did not hold the position of the protector and the spiritual leader. And so she took it, and in doing so, what happened? The fall. Okay. So then the response by God. Go to Genesis 3. This is really good, I think. Um, I didn't write it down. Genesis 3. Uh, I think it's 15 or 16. Oh, 16. I have a 16. Wow, you will have desire for your husband. Now, the interpretation on that is very interesting, and it's debated back and forth. But with, with the follow-up statement is, but he will rule over you, kind of indicates that the first statement is that you your desire will be for your husband, meaning there will be this strife going on between you and your husband all the time. Who's going to rule? And But it says, but God says what? Who will rule? Adam, which was God's established design from the beginning, right? Did he change his mind about that? No, he held the same position he held before. The woman is to be subject under the man. Why? Is it because the woman's less and she's so stupid she can't handle it without a man over her? But that is the way the world preaches it, right? That is what the world says. Is that what do you think God was doing? Why did God do it in this manner? Good job. I love it. Yes, bingo. One of the things that's really interesting is from the very beginning, God had designed. He also had a plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come. In Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about Christ in the church, that Christ is the head, right? And then the church is his bride. And then he talks about marriage relationship and how that imagery represents Christ in the church. The, therefore, the husband is to be the head. So he goes on to expand it. So a cross-reference expands or expounds upon this teaching that was all the way back in Genesis, which First Timothy makes reference to. He says, because of what happened between with Adam and Eve in the garden, because of that fall, therefore, there is a... I want you to remember that that's what happened when a woman defied God's authority, his designed purpose, his designed um, roles for each of us. And in doing that, we sinned and we fell. And that's what ha- was going on with this church. These were women who were, who were trying to basically usurp authority that was not theirs to have. Why? Because God's church is designed in the same order 
as God designed marriage and as God designed the what it pictures, which is Christ and his church. So if you, this is why God hates divorce so much. If you destroy marriages, what are you destroying? The picture of Christ and his church. The the fidelity, the faithfulness, the covenant that's everlasting, the tender love. You In Ephesians uh, 5, it says, and the husbands, uh, um, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do? He died for the church. There's this beautiful picture of salvation in marriage that is supposed to, uh, and a concept of what covenant is all about that we bear that's why we bear our wedding rings as a sign of our covenant and then our covenant is to be lived out in the world so that they see Christ in the church isn't that awesome okay so first Timothy what was going on with these women same thing that was going on in first Corinthians 11 if you come to a sound interpretation you should be able to find a cross-reference that supports it go back to first Corinthians 11 which is a very familiar passage for us I'm going to open my Bible so I can follow too and we're oh we're over I gotta hurry I'm so sorry was that why you were back there standing I am so sorry I you are just, you are so good. Okay, let me just let me just go through it. Um, in First Corinthians eleven, again, another letter written to rebuke and to correct women who were con- being contentious. It says in this one, he says, "But I want you to understand that Christ." In verse two, three, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman. And God is the head of Christ. So in other words, even in the deity, in the Godhead, there's order, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They each have their distinctive roles, yet they're co-equal with one another within their designed role. You and I, though, each have designed role. There's a role of the man and there's a role of the woman. And we are designed to give God glory. We are designed in these roles so that we depict the gospel message, that we depict covenant that we depict God's love for us and his faithfulness to us so all these things if we destroy the picture we mess with the gospel okay so here he says he goes on after saying and God is the head of Christ he says and every man who has has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head in other words he's not showing respect to God by removing his hat right and he says but to every woman who has her head uncovered which in that day it was very common the women were to cover their heads when they came into church why was simply symbolic it was a sign while praying prophesying she just if she goes in there praying and by the way did you notice the word prophesying so she she has the gift of the prophet she can prophesy it says but she if she does so with her head uncovered she's showing disregard for God's design order her place where she belongs by the role that God designed her and she disgraces her head for she is one and the same with with her whose head is shaved to have your head shaved would be a disgrace Okay, and he says, for if a woman does not cover her head, let also have her hair cut off. But it is a it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or for her head to be shaved. So let her cover her head (laughs) for a man ought not to have his head covered. Why? Because God's design role for him was for him to be the covering. Right. He's to be our protector. 
and and it says um and and but the woman is the glory of man for man does not originate from woman but woman from man even in the creation god had order right for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake but women for the man's sake in other she's to be the helpmate therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels now what did the angels do they forsook their designed position. They rebelled against God. What happened to them? They, one third of the angels fell. Verse 11, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. So now he puts us back on equal footing before the Lord. I'm not lesser just because my role is different, but I do have a role and I need to submit to God's authority of that, right? Verse 12, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourself if it is proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered. In this case, is it proper for a woman to try to exercise authority over a man in a, in a corporate setting of worship in this case? And in particular, is she to usurp that authority over a man in a congregational gathering time? In other words, if the pastor's up there preaching, should I just step, just step up and either say something from my pulp, from my pew, or should I go up to the stage and say, excuse me, uh, brother, <laughs> you got this wrong. Let me, let me correct you. And that's what apparently was going on. These women were, were being very arrogant and they were trying to uh, usurp their authority positions. And it says, does not even the nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her to her glory. Then he says in 16, here's the kicker verse. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. In other words, I just, if that, if you're going to be contentious, then you're just, you're being rebellious. You're being disobedient to God's design plan. I've told you what God says and God will deal with you. So he makes it really clear. This was a rebuke against their behavior. What's going on in first Timothy 2, 12, a rebuke against their behavior in the congregational gathering. He's not saying women cannot teach in the church. He's saying women cannot be contentious. They cannot be usurping their authority. In this case, exercise authority over a man. What did I say earlier about the teacher? I don't have authority over any of you, really. I have authority concerning the word I'm teaching, but I do not have authority over any of you. My gifting is not an authority uh, gift. Now, there are some apostles, pastor teachers, evangelists, and prophets. They tend to have some authority. Each one of those, some of them more than other, like the pastor teacher and the apostle, they're very, they, have, they have strong leadership and uh, authority positions. You see that in them, in their gifting. And you see it in their positions in the churches, even that, that where they go out and do their work. But a teacher, I don't have authority, right? But these women wanted to. Does it make sense now why that verse is the way it is? It's all about don't violate your known doctrine and know your context. Right? Does anybody have any questions on that one? I'm sorry I went over. I didn't mean to, but I really wanted to cover that, how to handle a difficult passage. I think it was important. Okay? Thank you, guys.